Hey guys, this is Dagon123, and welcome to... Dagoncast! Hello everyone, and welcome to the next exciting episode of TenchiCast, presented by TenchiForum.com. This podcast could have been named a lot of things. It could have been named No Need for Naoka Hasegawa. It could have been named No Need for the Smoking Gun. It could have been named quite a few many things. But for the purpose of this podcast, we are going to call it No Need for Hexagram of Love which has many revelations that we will get into as we go. Today with me, I have a fantastic cast. Crazed. What's going on, everybody? Pi. We're here to do stuff. And nil. Diane, never drink coffee that has been anywhere near a fish. First and foremost, this is more of a general discussion cast. Now, for those of you who don't know, we are going to be going over the newly translated project from Tenchi Forum Translations in association with the Hasegawa Translation Project. And we have both of the main translators of said project. If you have not read the novel before, we will be spoiling quite a few things. So go down to the download links below this video, audio, wherever you're listening to this at, and click those and read it beforehand if you don't want things to be spoiled. I'm going to open up the floor to... Crazed and nil. I've been out of the fandom for almost a decade at the point that I finally joined up at Tenchi Forum, and I, I had noticed that there were novels that I was completely unaware of at the time that I was in the fandom at the uh, the turn of the century, you know, when everybody else in uh, America had become aware of the Tenchi series thanks to Toonami, as we spoke in that cast uh, some weeks ago. And I started reading some of the novels, some of the summaries that were there, but I realized that there were only three summaries for over a dozen novels. And I thought, that, wow, this is weird. Like, it's not even full translations. They're just somebody summing up what was said, and not necessarily the whole thing. I, 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 I was just kind of weirded out by this, considering that how long these books had been written. Some of, you know, uh, this one, Hexagram of Love, was uh, published in 1993. So why don't you think about that for a second. 1993, and had remained completely unknown to American English-speaking audiences, I should say, since that time. And that blew my mind. So as, a, uh, as an author, as a writer, one who likes to imagine himself as one anyhow, I, I, just, I, couldn't, I could not stand to see such a bulk of work, particularly Tenchi work, sitting unread, ununderstood, unknown to people like me who were part of the English-speaking fandom. I, uh, I saw what Crazed was doing with uh, JG and the, with the Dojin translation project, and I found out you know, how he pretty much just hopped into it, and that, that lit a fire under my ass. That inspired me. I said, you know what? If he can do that, I'm going to get these novels done. Because I did, I did not think it was right to, to have these sitting there, and just seeing some of the the pictures that were in there, the illustrations that were done, I, it you know there was so much information there that I wanted to know, but I couldn't because nobody had ever actually fully translated them before, and any information that had been spread was in, incredibly unreliable because of just the way things have been in this fandom before. So I said to hell with it. 
I'm I'm gonna do these things, and uh, so here we are, May tenth, two thousand fourteen, talking about the first novel of thirteen, finally done. Well, um, you know, like Neil said, when he first joined up here, I was working with JG and doing various Dojin projects, and when he joined up, he was determined he was gonna get those novels done. And people had asked me before; they said. Now, would you ever consider doing any of the novels, the Hasegawa ones, any of them? And I said, well, I don't know. I, you know, I thought about it, but I really don't want a one man, a whole novel. It's not really what I signed up for. And Neil surprised me. You know, I was willing to do dojins, but he was willing to do novels. And he jumped in there and damn if he wasn't going to get them done. He had no clue how to smooth out jumbled up translations that we get and smooth them out into English. He he was having a little bit of trouble and I couldn't let him one man the project. So I decided, you know what, I'll take a break from these dojins and I'll give Neil a hand because he needs it. To, you know, I, I wasn't going to one man a whole novel and I wasn't going to let him do that to himself. So that's when I decided, you know what, I'm going to join up and help him. What was the most shocking revelation or the most shocking revelations to you, or really, I mean, it'll it'll kind of be sorted to all of us. But which, what, what was the most shocking revelation to you that came out of this novel? Oh man, this is a tough one. So many good ones, but I think the biggest one to me that came from this novel was finding out the fact that Kioni Makibi not only came first before Noike, but in the novel she is also Jiraiya. Now, I know there's been a big shit show over, well, who came first? Kione, Noike. Well, you know, Noike's in this continuity and all this other, and Kione's in this one. And, well, they're similar, but we don't know this and that. But, no. Kione's for Jiraiya, and she was first. That, to me, was the hugest one because I just didn't see it coming. When I was going through and translating, I hit when I hit that sentence, I double-checked, I triple-checked to make sure what I had gotten was right. And I could only find two different meanings for that group of kanji. And one was one's hometown, and the other one was one's place of origin. So, you know, that is what it says. Kione is from Jirai. That one definitely took me by surprise because it was such a... is an unanswered question. Pretty much always. Like, where was she from? She was, you know, she's always listed as just being a, a unspecified humanoid type character. Like a lot, you know, other characters like uh, Mihoshi even have specified races, areas where they're from. But Kione was always just this kind of outlier in that, well, what is she? Well, she's, you know, she's just a humanoid alien character. That's, that's all she is. Well, no, the answer is that she was Jiraiya. And it was right in front of everybody this entire time. One could argue that that's not necessarily true because of the way that all the characters kind of shuffle around from canon to canon, that terrible word as we would call it. But I think it sets the basis. The original Kione Makibi was, in fact, Jiraiyan, and that she should have and always will be from the planet Jirai. That's just the way it is. But to me, I think the other big bomb that dropped was towards the end of the novel when Nobuyuki mentions his wife's name. His wife's name is Achika Masaki. Not Kione, but it is Achika Masaki. And this has been another point of contention in this fandom, apparently, arguing which came first, Kione 
Akione Masaki or Achika Masaki? The answer is right in front of us. And the reason why this is is because a lot of the older fandom has attempted to argue saying that she used the name Kione without permission, but here's the facts. In the afterword, she mentions working closely with Hayashi and with Kajishima during the writing of OVA 1. She did the script writing for the entire first OVA, the one that is considered the most pure and essence of all Tenchi shows, from which all things depend. She was the one who took all of the ideas that they had and turned it into scripts that would be used for the animators to animate, for the voice actors to speak, for the story to come alive. She had to know absolutely everything about that universe. She could not know. If, if there was something she did not know, it would, have, it would have harmed her ability to complete that work. She was very studious with her mentors. She was very adamant about contacting her comrades and saying, hey, you know, uh, what's this? Uh, you know, can you answer a few questions for me here and there? She even apologizes to Kajishima because towards the end, she was asking some questions specifically about the Chosen that she had found out uh, in a bit of a panic, which is another topic for discussion. But, you know, she, she stayed on top of things. She knew everything about the Tenchi world, the Tenchi universe, as it were. And she had to know these things. She wasn't just making it up off the top of her head. In 1992 to 1993, when she was working on this novel, Tenchi's mother's name was Achika Masaki. It was never Kione. Well, I'll say this. Crazy Nil hit the two big ones, which are Keone Makibi is Jiraiyan and that Tenchi's mother is Ashika Ashika Masaki. Those, being someone who's been in this fandom since 1997 when I first saw Tenchi Mui in Love on sci-fi when it was still spelled correctly, I was laying in my floor reading pages I printed off at the office, and please don't get me in trouble, people in the office, Uh, but I was sitting there going and I was like, oh, oh my god. It's true. It it made my day. It made all of those de- all of those days of of arguing on forums and uh, arguing as well via voice uh, just worth it because I finally saw all this truth that had been laying there the whole time. That all of those things that I I had held as truths in my in the back of my mind from watching Universe or the original six episode uh, OVA series one and. Everything just clicked. Everything made sense. Uh, as far as like what I could add to this, as far as bombshells were concerned, things that uh, struck me really, really hard. The characterization, which I think is actually another topic for discussion, the characterization of all the characters is strong, unique. Every character has depth to them. They're not played off for laughs. They're not backgrounded. Tenchi Masaki himself has been notorious for, uh, especially in Okuda's manga, for being written off to the corner while the girls take center stage and occasionally he'd walk up and say, aren't I the main character? And they shove him back in the in the background. No, this novel actually deals heavily with Tenchi's own insecurities, with Aieka's insecurities, even with Ryoko's insecurities in many in many ways. Hoshi gets a hell of a lot of screen time, well, page time, in this regard. But as even looking at Nobuyuki, I would like to say the scene with Nobuyuki and Tenchi, where Tenchi confronts him, is one of the best scenes in the damn book. Uh, the other one, of course, is the. <clears throat> This scene with Tenshi and Ryoko, which we'll get to soon enough. But as far as bombshells are concerned, things that are like world-shattering, 
I would say the thing that is the most world-shattering for me goes back to Kione, but goes back to another subtle point about Kione. Uh, Kione is from the planet Jirai, but unlike Yosho, Aieka, Sasami, uh, even Tenshi, with, uh, what, with his mixed blood, so to speak, and even Yosho's mixed blood as well, Kione is not Jiraiyan royalty. Uh, it's probably why it's been downplayed so much. Hell, she in the novel, she basically downplays it, except to say, hey, I know a couple things. Kione actually downplays her patriotism to Jirai completely. In fact, she's al she almost seems like she's an expatriate. She doesn't like Jiraiyan royalty. She doesn't, li doesn't like him. They, she actually states that there's a big uh, class gap between Jiraiyan royalty and Jiraiyan commoners, and it's caused rebellion, it's caused uprising. It's something that we had very subtly mentioned with uh, Yosho when he reveals himself in Ova Episode 5 and says there would have been pr trouble if, if we married us into the throne, that would, that would cause a lot of trouble, uh, I had to leave, I couldn't bear it. Uh, a lot of stuff that has been forgotten in the last, in the last two OVA series that have followed that there is a lot of struggle in Jirai. There's a lot of violence that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know about. As such, actually that affects the characterization of Azusa and Misaki as the emperor and empress of Jirai, because the two of them are far, far more sensible than the their versions that are in OVA 2 episode, the last episode of OVA 2, where they are played off for laughs, that they're just kind of a comedic, oh, that's just the king and the queen, don't worry about them. No, they take seriously, there is actually an assassination attempt in the novel, it's the main thrust of the plot for this novel, is there's an assassination attempt on the royal family, all of them, and... You get to see Misaki act like a mother. You get to see Azusa step up and say, okay, this is how shit's going to get done. It's a far more dangerous universe than has been portrayed, except outside of, surprisingly, Tenshi Universe, where Kagato, as a Jiraiyan, Jiraiyan noble, was trying to usurp the throne from Aieka. It's almost the same kind of feel that I get from that, and that, to me... I want to use the word vindicates that continuity and says that was a way that the the writers actually used to have an outlet and show what other continuities could have been. Each of these things, having Kione be first, having Kione be Jiraiyan, having Achika be first, having, you know, Nobuyuki's revelation about Achika to Tenchi, having characterization that didn't exist before, the two big ones to me, to kind of round out the circle here, is the fact that, as of the first novel, Azusa has one wife, and that's Misaki. And Misaki has the same characterization as Funaho. Now, again, we look back at Naoka Hasegawa, we look at what she did for the first OVA, and we look at the conception of the first OVA. One of the big things that people tend to overlook, or really just flat-out ignore because of time and history, is that this, this OVA, the first OVA, and really Tenshi Muyo, was the concept of one man, and that was Hiroki Hayashi. Hiroki Hayashi has stated multiple times, but more specifically, he has stated in an An America issue where he was interviewed in 1994, Tenshi Muyo was his baby. He hand-picked. He hand picked every one of the Japanese seiyuu to play the characters because he could see those characters that way. He wrote all of the rough draft scripts. He worked closely with Hasegawa 
because Hasegawa was the storyboarder for OVA 1, and she also worked on scripts. Those two knew the story of Tenshi Muyo like the back of their hand. Like, they knew exactly where it was going to go. It's interesting that all of these characters exist in 1993, in May of 1993, way before the beginning of OVA 2, and even before the beginning of Night Before the Carnival. One of the things that fundamentally changes this as well is that each of those three people, Masaki Kajishima, Hiroki Hayashi, and Naoka Hasegawa, are considered the three creators of Tenchi Muyo. When those three are together, it's Tenchi Muyo cannot get better. This first novel was also a conception of those three. Naoka Hasegawa wrote it, Kajishima did the front illustration, Hiroki Hayashi and was it Horiyuki Horiyushi? I think Some Horiyushi that, yeah. Horiyushi. Yeah. Those two did the inside uh, drawings. They did the illustrations on the inside. So every one of the people who made Tenchi Muyo worked on that novel, and even more importantly so, recognized it. They recognized that it was a part of Tenchi Muyo, as Tenchi Muyo was supposed to be, which means this first novel is canon. It is canon before everything else. It's canon before Night Before the Carnival. It's canon before OVA 2, which then comes, we ask ourselves, and have uh, this question has been asked multiple times, uh, What what is considered canon? Because if those three worked on something, and then Hiroki Hayashi and Naoka Hasegawa stepped away, can it really still be considered canon? In my opinion, and as far and really as far as I'm concerned, no. Everything after the first OVA is its own continuity, because the, the creators are gone. Two-thirds of the creation of Tenchi Muyo are gone. You can't say that you, in, in a right mind, in a fair mind, you cannot say anything afterwards is canon. It is its own continuity. Many people have found it easy to say the OVA because it's easy, because they, you know, the homework isn't there. With this first novel, and the novel subsequently afterwards that we've kind of had a peek at, we're hearing more and more that the things that you see in OVA 2 and these ideas that people have prostrated, such as Kajishima knew this in high school and Kajishima had this grand idea, he didn't. He was not the creator. He was not the person who came up with the concept. He helped with the concept, but he was not the he was not the person that created Tenshi Muyo. You know, it was it was a collective effort between three people. And when those three people are not there, we discussed this in a in a prior podcast, but the direction, the the feeling of OVA two is radically different than that of OVA one. That's because, you know, Hiroki Hayashi is not there and many things are changed. So, as far as I'm concerned, that that is not to be too long-winded, but that to me is the biggest revelation, is that canon is OVA-1, but with this new novel, with this first novel of Hasegawa's, which predates everything else, and is the first novel. In fact, as Nil said, Hasegawa said that she had started working on this novel as early as episode 2 of OVA-1. So, all three of the people who worked on this novel put it in there. That makes it canon, which means that Kiyone Makibi and Achika Masaki are canon. You know, it means that Azusa and Masaki, one wife, the Emperor and Empress of Jirai, are canon. 
which means it needs to be read by everybody. Actually, to throw another little word out there, just for those of you who are not uh, familiar with the word, canon, spelled C-A-N-O-N, has two basic definitions, one of which is a general role, uh, general law or rule or principle or criterion by which something is judged. So it essentially is a, me- a meter stick, a measuring stick that says this is this is good enough, this is sufficient, this is law. The other definition is a collection or list of sacred books accepted as genuine. And by de- by that definition and what Dagon has just said as far as who who wrote what and who and who worked on what, this book novel and the first six episodes of Ten- of Tenchiova, Tenchiova series 1, that is the collection or list of sacred books that should be listed as genuine because all three people worked on it and the minute they all stopped working on it it scatters, it's shattered, it's different, it's broken. It's different fragments of the original whole. Now, are those different fragments good or bad? That's subjective. That's something that, 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 can be, that can't be measured with an objective measuring stick. But counting up the number of people who collaboratively worked on something, you can actually measure that. And we have evidence now that has been translated that shows what, it, what this is and what this isn't. It's also uh, one thing I wanted to say in there before we go on, uh, referencing back to the An America interview that I guess I slipped up on, is the fact that Hiroki Hayashi said that Tenchi Muyo, the idea, was no more than idle banter between him and Masaki Kajishima in 1990 and 1991. So Tenchi Muyo wasn't this grand thing that they had beforehand. It was something that came to them very quickly. You know, it was something that came to Hayashi, and then uh, Kagoshima wrote down the ideas, and then they went to AIC. Like, it, it, was, it wasn't... Tenchi Muyo has always been weird, because it started out as an anime first, whereas most things, most franchises start out as a manga, so they have something, they have, you know, as Pai was saying, they have, that is, that is where the bar begins. That's where every, that is, that is canon, that is by which what everything is judged. For that, for the- and in Tenchi, it's OVA1 and the first novel of Hasegawa. To pile on even further onto this fun little uh, heap here, one detail that we noticed towards the end of production of this first novel is very revealing on the way that Kajishima's revisionist version of how canon was supposed to be has taken hold. While we were working on the last stretch of the book, Crazed had ordered in a bunch of art books that were uh, available for fairly cheap, and he figured, well, why not, you know? Got some time, got some money, they're, that's as cheap as they're probably going to get, let me just go ahead and order them on in. Well, he got them in, and that day that he got the, the art books in, I pop into Mumble, and he says, you'll never guess what I found. And he posts a picture that he took of one of the pages in the art book featuring a picture that accurately, 100%, except for one small detail, which we'll get to, describes a sketch that Hasegawa was sent by Kajishima during the production of the novel and towards the end of OVA1. That had three characters in it, in her description that she mentions in the afterword. It had Azusa, it had Misaki, his only wife at the time, and it had uh, Tokimi over his other shoulder. It's exactly as how the, the picture is described. This is, for all intents and purposes, the piece of artwork that she was sent. The one that we found has Fanaho shoehorned off in the corner. 
and it sets the balance of the picture off. If you look carefully at the picture at the very end of the novel, you will notice that the balance of characters between Azusa's shoulders is fairly perfect. You can use artistic techniques to kind of notice that there's a symmetry there that was being attempted by Kajishima. Well, not attempted. He did. In the original version of the sketch, there was three characters. There's a perfect symmetry there. It it fits. It looks good. It adheres to artistic design standards that are, are used to make an attractive-looking image. What is added in this picture is Fanaho and a small detail that I did not notice until I was I was finishing up the PDF for the novel. In the book proper, there are black and white images that were done by uh, Hiroki Ayashi and Hiro Hiroshi Horiuchi. Probably butchered that name. And um, in one of the pictures, we see a character getting their head blown off with Azusa and Masaki directly behind him because of what's happening in the story. It's, it's the attack that leads to the incredible second half of the novel. There's a detail that's missing from Masaki's character. She has no gems on her forehead. I've been shown that people who like to believe things about Kajishima's uh, long-running canon, working on it since high school theory, that Azusa took two wives. Fanaho was the first, hence the, the one crystal on her forehead, and that Masaki was the second wife, hence the second crystal on her forehead. In the novel, she has no such thing on her forehead, because she is the only wife that he has. This revision of the piece of work that he sent to Hasegawa, because I'll, I will mention and make note that she does not mention Fanaho at all. There is only three people in this uh, particular artwork that she was sent. Fanaho is stuffed in the corner, and it upsets the balance of the picture. And those crystals are drawn on their heads. I, I, I have reason to believe that Fanaho did not exist until Kajishima began to take more control and gradual control and forced her in. We do see Fanaho pop up in one of the later books, I believe it is book eight, uh, in one of the images, but this is not indicative of her existing to begin with, because she didn't, at least not to the degree that she was one of his wives. I think that this is a situation very similar to how Akuda had to do things with his manga, where he found out things as Kajishima was putting them into the story and had to make do with it immediately like he he knew okay well if kajishima stuffed this into his ova3 and ova2 then i guess i'm gonna have to do it because that's what that's what i'm drawing from so if that's what's there that's what that's what i've got to do hasagawa is a meticulous well-educated woman and a very gifted writer who takes her work very seriously and uh she she had to keep things as close to the source as possible because that's how she always wrote she wrote using everything that she was given Fanaho did not exist. She was simply made later to create this sort of fetishistic double wife thing that Jirai is now known for. But that was never how it was supposed to be to begin with. Again, it's important to keep in mind that she had to know these things. Because these were what would have been put in to the storyboard. She was, she was a part of the creative process, 100%. She had to be. You know, one of the things that people take for granted is the director and the storyboarder because you know I'll, I'll reference Ava 
Hideaki Anno and the storyboarder did not talk for five years after after the end of Evangelion showing the TV series because there were deadlines. And Anno sometimes would change the story. Keep in mind, he's the director. He would change the story, which would then have to go through the storyboard process the day before they had to do it. So it would it would frantically rush things through. So they both had to be on top of their toes. 99% of productions know way ahead of time. The director comes up with a concept, writes a rough draft of the script, which goes off to the storyboarder. The storyboarder writes that in, blah, blah, blah. And then that gets sent to the animators. It's extremely telling that Hasegawa, you know, at the very end of the novel, asks who Tokimi is. Asks why Washu is a goddess. And it refers to it as absurdity, because she had no idea. Hayashi had no idea. Like, it was it was something... It, it just goes to show that Kajishima was nowhere in the creative process. Or if he was, he was, at the, he was in such a small niche part of it that he was insignificant. Why is it that both of them... Why is it that Hasegawa, of all people, had no idea? Had no idea beforehand. But everything else was flowing very, very well, and then this thing was dropped on her, and it was just like, because it wasn't there. Like, it just, it was not there. It was not originally intended to be that way. And also, keep in mind, you know, a lot of people will then jump to, okay, well, as far as two wives and backstory and everything, they'll go to the Shin Tenchi novels that Kajishima wrote. Well, this will be real quick, but OVA 1 was 92, OVA 2 was 94. And this novel came out before, night before the carnival did. Kajishima's first Shin Tenchi novel, quote-unquote true Tenchi novel, didn't come out until, what, 1998? So well after all of this stuff had been established. And then he goes back and changes it in the Shin Tenchi novels to make it, to try and make it fit the direction that he's wanting to take the story in. There was one thing I was thinking about, and this is something that a bunch of us have been discussing a couple times before, is that in OVA OVA Series 1, Episode 5, so canon as as per definition, uh, Yosho mentions that his his mother was an earthling. And as such, he is one too. This is where he wants to be buried, etc. And so... There are inklings that Yosho had a had a mother who was human, and of course his father is Azusa. So, and it's mentioned in episode three that he is uh, Ayaka's half brother. That they have uh, apparently ha- share the same father, but they do not share the same mother, uh, which implies well, there's a couple things that could have happened here. Either Azusa had a previous wife who is no longer in the picture, whether she's dead, divorced, or other, or the fact that Yosho could have been born out of wedlock, in which case that would make Yosho not the legitimate heir. He would make him a bastard son, in which case he couldn't take the throne, and the only way he could take the throne is to marry Ayaka. Ayaka would be actually be the legitimate successor. And I noticed that running around through through the book, um, even Yosho's daughter, Achika, yes, I said Achika, um, she is referred to as Princess of Jirai also. So I'm actually very curious as to what happened here. Who, 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 how, these, how these people are connected, uh, what the line of succession would have been, especially considering how dangerous, dangerous the universe and the Empire seems to be now. There is a woman mysteriously pigeonholed somewhere. Maybe she was meant, meant to be 
talked about in one of the later novels. Maybe she was something that the guys had been to tossing around the office. But it is very telling, as everyone has sa said so far, she hasn't been named. She hasn't been shown. She's she's almost like a not not a secret, but a a shame that no one wants to talk about and no one does talk about even though even though Azusa himself walks up to Yosho and says welcome home son i'm glad you're not dead come join me which is completely opposite the very very distant and very disassociative uh, way Azusa acts in OVA2 the last episode of OVA2 when the royal family shows up uh, he's the two of them almost barely even speak it's it's very telling that Azusa is so different, and I'm very curious to know what went down with uh, Yosho's mother and who she is. What was your favorite or favorite parts of the novel, and what were some of the things that really just had you gripped to the novel? Well, it's another tough one, but I don't know. Let's see. I think my favorite thing about this first Hasegawa novel was the big Ryoko and Tenchi moment, just because Ryoko's my favorite out of all of them, and that hit home to me when I got to read that in the novel, because, you know, Ryoko, she's acting really strange. You know, she's not acting very bold and outgoing, and, um, you know, when Katsuhito leaves them alone, then she immediately she immediately changes, and she grabs Tenchi, and she for almost forces him to kiss her, and, uh, you know, Tenchi's all, he almost goes through with it, but at the very last second, at the very last second, he backs out of it. And it, it hurts her. It kills her. She even says that she killed him, or that, uh, or no, that he killed her when, uh, he did that. Then she breaks down crying. Tenchi, you know, he doesn't know what to do. He's like, what can I do to make this better? And, you know, and then all of a sudden, it says he felt like a, a uh, child that got scolded by his mother seeing Ryoko get upset like that. And then it immediately jumps to he all of a sudden remembers uh, what his mother looked like when he was a child. you know. And it's the same image that we see in that flashback in the first OVA where Achika is in her, uh, her pink or her purple kimono in that uh, white parasol that she's using. You know, he just breaks down because between what's going on with Ryoko and remembering that all these things hit him at once, he breaks down. And then Ryoko calms down and she goes and hugs Tenchi from behind. And she 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 flat out tells him that she could watch him when he was younger and that she wanted to, you know, she wanted to console him when he was younger. But she couldn't do that because she didn't have a body and it killed her. And she was jealous of him because he could go to his mother. And she didn't have that, even though they were only together for five years before Achika died. And all my feels right there, man, it was so good. I think what really got to me and kept me going with the novel the whole time was the, the absurdly strong characterization that everybody got. Everybody, even even the most minor of characters, had intensities to them. They had, They were human as human as humanoid aliens can be, you know. They they were characters. They're people that you felt like you could relate to on various different levels. One of the most intense scenes, and one that choked me up the entire time I was working on it, was the scene where Nobuyuki and Tenchi are discussing 
what is going on. Like, Tenshi's been proposed to by Aieka in front of the entire universe, and he's being forced into a ceremony, and, you know, him and Nobuyuki and Katsuhito are standing around trying to get dressed and be prepared for this fancy occasion. During the conversation, Tenshi asks his father, well, you know, are, if I'm dry royal blood, doesn't that make you a prince? Shouldn't you be going before me, dad? And, you know, Nobuyuki just says, you don't understand it, son. I was never Jiraiyan royalty. Your mother was Jiraiyan royalty. And it just, you know, it takes him back. He's never known that his own mother was Jiraiyan royalty because he barely even knew her to begin with. But, you know, this is something that Nobuyuki has had to keep on his head the entire time. And then when he finally owns up to this, you know, starts talking about the way Achika was and how Earth did not agree with her for whatever reason. Everybody was saying, oh, she looks fine while she was growing up. Like nothing, she'll be, she looks like a nice, healthy girl. You know, she looks healthy, everybody said. She looks fine. She's growing up to be a nice, strong young woman. Why not, uh, you know, what, what seems to be the problem? But she always knew that she was going to go early. She always knew that. And he recollects a time, Tenshi, where Achika straight up told him, when I go, please, for me, find a second wife. Live and be happy. Because I'm not going to be long for this world. You know, Maybe she didn't know when exactly she was going to go, but she knew that she was going to go far younger than Nobuyuki was going to. And she continued to try and tell him, like, please, get, get somebody else in your life. And unlike OVA 3, where he ends up marrying his assistant his secretary at work, he straight up tells Tenchi, I can't do it. I loved your mother. I married her for a reason. All these years she told me that, and I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to even think of the thought. I would rather take my own head off just to have a chance to see your mother again. And Tenchi thought about that for a bit, and he realized that he just had no idea about his father's feelings on the matter. And all these years, he's just made assumptions and never actually thought to ask his dad how he felt about that thing, about that particular event, his mother's death, and why he never showed interest in dating or remarrying again. He was a one-woman man. He made that very clear in that scene. And Tenshi realizes the whole time he's been a coward and a child for not realizing why his father never remarried. And that, to me, is just one of those moments, one of many moments. There's so many good moments of just excellent characterization and emotion, humanity in characters who previously may not have had that uh, spotlight shown on them or even had, you know, even if they did have the spotlight shown on them were really just clowns without the makeup. It, it's really telling. And that just... The strong characters really kept me going during the entire translation process. Crazy Nil have hit the two big ones, which are Ryoko, Ryoko's uh, near kiss with Tenshi. You have also Nobuyuki's big thing with Tenshi, which kind of explains a lot about Tenshi. 
I'm gonna go to the th- to the third of the trinity. You've got ten- you've got Ryoko Tenchi. I'm gonna talk about Aika. One thing I loved, absolutely loved about the first OVA series was Aika was a very very dramatic character. She had a lot of deep troubling moments. She tried to be she was trying to be mature, but she was also mentally very very young because she had lived in many ways a sheltered life. She had lost the man that she was supposed to marry. Her entire future seemed in jeopardy. She had all of these adult problems and really she was forced into many of these adult problems. The nice thing, the glorious thing I find with this novel is you get in Aika's head. You see, she has of the of the characters. A lot of them have inner monologue. Ryoko does, Tenchi does, where they're kind of thinking about things, and that's something you don't get with an anime. You re- don't really get that inner monologue. But with Aika, dollars to donuts, she's the one who has the most inner monologue in the entire entire book. And she's reflecting on everything, just about everything she does. Before she acts, she's had about two paragraphs worth of of background where she's thinking, okay, if I did this, then this would happen, and then I could do this. But wait, maybe if I did this instead, or maybe if I considered them, then this would happen. She is a very cerebral woman. She is actually a very cerebral person where she's thinking out everything she does before she does it. Now, admittedly, she's a princess. She has an image to maintain, so she has to... Think about the crown and think about the royal family and what have you. The only time that ever seems to really break down is, well, the most obvious is when Ryoko pops up and starts pushing her buttons. But in particular, two scenes stand out to me uh, where Aika is really thinking about what she's done or what she has to do. Uh, the first one is – the first one that I remember is – ah, it's when Azusa and Misaki arrive. And everyone's all happy to meet. Everyone's every happy to meet everybody. Uh, Azusa, Azusa and Misaki hug their daughters, or give actually seem affectionate to their children. It's comple- again completely opposite to what you see in the last episode of OVA two. But Sasami, Sasami, oh dear, Sasami makes a slip of the tongue and mentions, oh, this is Tenchi, and this is and this is Ayaka, and this is Ryoko. Oh, oh, Ryoko. Oh, shit. Uh, and she realizes what she's done and is com- immediately guilty. I mean, she's immediately uh, – again, Sasami's a ch- we forget that Sasami's a child. And she makes this one little slip-up, and she realizes she might have just put Ayaka, uh, Ryoko's head in a noose. And Azusa immediately stands up and says, all right, Ryoko, where are you? I mean, draws a sword, starts starts talking shit, and uh, Ryoko's nowhere to be found. She's, she's hightailed it out of there for the moment. And in that moment, Ayaka has a, cha- has a chance. She could screw Ryoko over uh, because something we haven't touched on is what's called the Divine Response Warrior, which is essentially Jirai's hitman, who is essentially this dog of war who will go out Find this, hunt them down with no mercy, and murder them in cold blood. That that guy, oh that guy, we could talk about him for a while. But Azusa threatens to make Ryoko permanently wanted, which means the hitman's coming for her, and we we're, we would not see Ryoko ever again. She'd either be eternally on the run or be dead. And Ayaka thinks about it, and she spends a good time, good ch- good two paragraphs thinking of I could easily, easily remove Ryoko from my path and have Tenchi all to myself. But 
wait, she's done so much good for me, and she's actually she helped me fight, helped me with, I helped her with fighting Kagato. There's so much that. I don't think I can't do it. I can't. I can't do this. And she recants and actually stands back and doesn't speak anything when Ryoko pops up and has this little tiff with Azusa, which that's another nice scene is when Azu- Ryoko and Azusa confront each other. But Aika really just worries and worries. I always felt that Aika was a worrier in universe as well as in the first OVA, but this just confirms it that all that's going on in her head, there's a lot of machinery that's going on in her head. Even at the banquet, when she's hugging up next to Tenshi and she's trying to ingratiate and piss off Ryoko and saying, ha ha, I got him, I got him. Tenshi stands up and says, again, another thing that I will give this novel is Tenshi has a has a bloody spine. He stands up and says, I'm not marrying anyone. Stop trying to railroad my life. And Ayaka shatters. All this time, she had thought that she was the one. She had, had she had the royalty. She had the power. She had convinced Tenshi that, she, that he should love her. She thought she had it all sewn up and had ingratiated him to her father. And then he says no. He says, no more. I'm not making this decision. Do not force me. Aika breaks down and runs out of the banquet. And then, of course, things go bad with the assassination attempt. But Aika gets out and leaves, and she steals Mahoshi's clothes, jacks the car, and drives away into the night. Luckily, there's no traffic. And she's, in the entire drive, she's running on this emotional and possibly slightly drunken high, where she's where she's she she's cooling herself down. She's thinking about all the shit, what she just said and how childish she's being. And she's like, "Oh, I can't stand this. I can't deal with it." And I mean, she re- re- recycles everything she had just done and said and th- thought about how bad everything was starting to look. And she just wanted escape. It goes back to a universe again that. Aika wants away from her responsibility. She doesn't want to be uh, to have all this weight put on her. She again, Misaki mentions that Aika in Earth years is precisely 20 years old, sans the 700 years of traveling uh, traveling on board Ryuo, which Ryuo was mentioned left, right, and center. Um, but she's still relatively young and living a sheltered life. She's Still got somewhat of a mentality of a teenager, much much like Tenshi. So she can't deal. She got she has to get away. She goes to a bar to try and drown herself in sake because she just doesn't want to think about it. I mean, I love the characterization for her that even though she's 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 done bad, she realizes it and she just can't cope. She has to find has to find some other way to cope. So she finds a bottle for the moment. Uh, luckily, things turn out a little bit better later but i love how deep her character is compared to the other many most of the other series because most of the other series she's written off as this uh this shrew who is a, more or less a wet blanket on the group and that's not the case she actually has a lot of her own problems much like tenchi has his own insecurities he's inexperienced in love he's indecisive he's uh he's naive 
Uh, Ryoko is brash and blunt, uh, but she's just as naive because she was played a, played as a puppet for so long. She doesn't have a lot of life experience either. All three of them are basically teenagers starting to come into their own, and they're making mistakes. And if that's the one thing that anyone can take from this novel is these people are human beings with flaws, and they are making their mistakes, and we're seeing them very openly. And in and the universe is seeing them because all of this happened on camera on uh television cameras the entire time if i had to say what my favorite thing about the novel is besides you know all of the crazy revelations that happened i would have to say the one thing to kind of agree with nil and you know i'll expound on what grace said one of the one of the greatest things that i liked about the novel was the fact that there was you know fantastic characterization there was uh the characters they they got screen time, but it wasn't screen time where things happened to them. It was screen time where they grew. You know, one of the one of the best things that happens to Mihoshi is Mihoshi gets character. You know, Aika gets character. All of them work simultaneously together as a unit, and uh, as a unit that is Tenchi Muyo. You know, there's there's a part where Mihoshi becomes Washu's lab assistant. There's, uh, you know, Aika is scheming. Aika actually has depth to her. Each of the and of all the characters I'm most impressed with, it's Tenchi. Like Tenchi gets real characterization. Like he's forced into it because every other time it's just shrugged off. Like, oh well, he's the stupid kid protagonist or the stupid teen protagonist in the middle of the harem. No, like that's. The, you know, not to be too vulgar, but that's the most bullshit reason to not to be a bad writer. Like that, you don't do that. Everybody, everybody needs it because it makes everything better. But to expound on that point, Tenshi can't control the power of the Lighthawk. Like he cannot. He just can't. Why? Because he's never really trained with it. Like he's he's never. It's there. He can bring it out, but he can't control it. Because why would he? At what point? Is it acceptable to say, well, he just he just naturally gets it? Well, that doesn't make sense because he had trouble controlling it in the first place. Why would why wouldn't he have trouble controlling it until he could master it? You know, Pi brought up a really great point. Now, you know, in Dragon Ball Z, when I believe it was what Cell, when they have to fight him, at that point Goku was the only person who had gone Super Saiyan. The others kind of had gone super. The others had gone Super Saiyan, but they couldn't control it. Like they couldn't just bring it out at will, or it wasn't, you know, something they could rely on. So Goku trained them in the hyperbolic time chamber, so that they were Super Saiyan all the time. So they could they could work for it. People can talk a lot of crap about DBZ, but that makes sense. That's good character development because why would they be able to master what is supposed to be this legendary energy uh, that only Saiyans can do? And at that point, you know, people thought, oh, well, only at that point in the series, they thought only Goku could do. The same could be said of Tenchi. Why is it that one day he can barely control it and can't get it to materialize when he's fighting Ryoko's demons, and the next he's pulling people out of black holes? Like, that, that makes absolutely no sense. So... That happening and him, spoilers, if spoilers weren't apparent at this point, uh, he kills everybody because of that, you know, or it, it's, it gets way, or in the Masaki Shrine, like, it gets way out of control, and so the essential, which is another funny thing that is brought up early, in 1993, the universal reset switch between the goddesses is brought up, take that as you will, and one of the other things that is just kind of like a vindication thing is every one of the characters is important in this novel. But only two of them love Tenchi in that way. And it's extremely apparent which one of the cohesive unit of three wasn't all about the the one single girl. 
when Hiroki Hayashi went off and did El Hazard, Makoto got Iferita done. That was it, right from the very beginning. In much the same way that Ryoko was introduced. Hasegawa has worked on many things that have never had that leaning. In fact, the first storyboard in episode 2 has Ryoko kissing Tenchi. There's an entire episode of... The entire first episode of Tenchi is dedicated to Ryoko. Like, it's always been Ryoko. She's always been the one they've leaned at. In the first novel, we get that even more so when the goddesses choose one of them. The goddesses, the three goddesses, the three chosen goddesses choose one. And the next picture is a picture of Ryoko floating between the three goddesses. I'm like, it's, like, seriously. It was going to be Ryoko. It was always meant to be Ryoko. We haven't talked about Pete. The induction technician. Ah, uh, yes. That was, uh, that was an entertaining thing to try and figure out there. The induction technician, the divine response warrior. Major spoilers to follow because he is a big part of this plot. Basically, for those of you who are listening, you're probably wondering what in the hell is an induction technician? Well, we will always kind of laugh about it, and I will probably always call him that. But, but the Divine Response Warrior, the Divine Responder, is Jirai's secret weapon, so to speak. An assassin for Jirai, who is so feared by everybody that just saying his name means somebody's gonna die like that it's not one of those things like oh well he's gonna go out and attempt to kill somebody no you hear his name somebody's dead period the divine response warrior is a very interesting character because of how feared he is he is Jirai's royal family's right hand man he's their personal hitman and he has control over special tools that only he has to get the job done. If they need him to go kill somebody, they call upon him and he do the business. What's so crazy about it is that nobody even knows who he is. It's all like everybody just refers to him as the, you know, the hound of war, the hound of death. Like when Jirai sends him out, you will die, but nobody knows what he looks like, nobody knows what his real name is. You know, they almost talk about him like they do the Stig on Top Gun. Like, we found him in a basket somewhere, you know, with a, the magazine in one hand and a steering wheel in the other. He is the Divine Response Warrior sort of thing. Like, people just don't know anything about him. The only thing that they know for sure is that when he comes, people die. And that's, it. it he's extremely feared. So when we get to... And again, spoiler warnings, in case this hasn't been obvious enough, when we get to the point that the Divine Response Warrior is revealed, and it is Pete, of all people, who is the Divine Response Warrior, and we begin to see how he operates, it's, it's incredible. Because this is a very well-written character with a lot of depth, who has two very distinct sides to him. And when he's in Divine Response Warrior mode, he is incredibly meticulous. And he he just, he's got, he's on another level of investigative technique outside of his uh, Galaxy Police training. And he's he responds to particular threats as best he possibly can, which is to say, when, come hell or high water, he gonna get done what needs to get done. And he ends up, doing something almost unspeakable he shoots Aika in the head while she's possessed with his special heat blaster to to deter her 
because th- th- there's only one way to kill the spirit. He's he's heard about these. He's trained. He knows about these spirits that have possessed people before. The only real way to do it is to hit them in the head while they're still in the head, and that is the only way to kill them. He's willing to kill Ayaka to stop this thing from getting anybody else or to stop it from using Ayaka's incredible power to do more damage. Even Even Azusa was willing to kill his own daughter because he realized how how crazy this was. But that's just that's just the meticulousness that Pete has as the divine response warrior. And he is it just goes to show his dedication to keeping the dry royal family safe has no bounds. He will do whatever is absolutely necessary to assure that they are not wiped out. And it's fascinating. We there is nobody really quite like that in the Tenchi uh, expanded universe through all the different canons and side stories and whatnot. Pete is the only one. The Divine Response War is the only one who has that type of reverence like that. Actually, when I was reading about the Divine Response Warrior imme- immediately before it was revealed to be Pete, a thought through, uh, flew through my mind, and that was of the human Azaka and Kamidake from Tenchi Universe. They are thing, they are p- characters of legend, and this guy is like almost like a a night a, a a bedtime story, a horror story you tell your kids. Don't be don't be bad, kids. Or the Divine Response Warrior is going to get you, and it turns out he will fuck you up. Although I'm I'm wondering about how certain things got written because the term that's used in Tenshi Universe, if you listen to the listen to the Japanese track for Azaka and Kamidake, are Kenshi, which I think means Swordmaster or something. And I'm kind of curious if the the background for Pete, uh, especially if he gets used again in a later novel, was ever was ever in spot inspiration for the human Azaka and Kamidake. But speaking of Pete, he also seems to have a soft side. When he's not in his divine response warrior mode, he's a lot more subdued, a lot more hell. He's freaking funny. He hangs out with he hung out with Sasami and kind of play, and played with her. He also has a really serious soft spot for Mahoshi. It seems he he actually said, and I mean, given all the stuff Nils said about him just a moment ago, uh, he said that he would give up being Jirai's hitman. For, to settle down and live a nice, quiet life with Mahoshi. He could he could do that. He could live with that. Well, the one thing that's pretty crazy about Pete is he's, an, he's a sharp, intelligent man. He's very friendly. He's uh, very methodical. But it's, it's interesting in that he is, he's a little bit tortured. In, in the Divine Response Warrior training, you're kind of drilled down. You're, you're turned into a very exacting warrior. He mentions that emotions can get in your way on the battlefield, therefore you're taught not to have them. He has managed to successfully separate himself and have two distinct personalities, one being the Peter Finlay of the administration division of the Galaxy Police, uh, and this one is a very caring, jokish man who just... He's very carefree, but he's also extremely intelligent. He makes he makes constant references. He's very wordy. He has a lot of uh, he has a high vocabulary, a lot of language that he uses compared to some of the other characters. Uh, in a way, Hasegawa herself kind of emerges out of him because uh, he makes references to things that nobody else in the house really does. Uh, there's a part, there's a small conversation that he has with uh, Sasami over breakfast the morning that he arrives at the Masaki household where he kind of 
slyly jokes to Sasami saying, hey, well, would you mind introducing me to your sister? It it would sure turn a, a Okayama holiday into a Roman holiday. And none of us really knew what that meant. We We weren't even sure if that was what the line really said until we looked it up. And as it turns out, Roman holiday, and I can't believe I didn't remember this, and Chuck gave me the business for this. Roman holiday is a movie that came out in 1953 starring Audrey Hepburn, where a princess visiting Rome is bored with her life and wants to escape her captivity. You know, to to her, it's it's really an entourage, but she feels like it's like she's being held captive and she doesn't like it. She meets an American journalist and runs away with him. And we immediately realize the implications that that has, that reference that he made. And Sasami's like, oh, yeah, I saw that on TV the other day. And, you know, Pete's like, I'm very, you know, I'm very particular about my library. He's obviously a very educated man. And it just goes with with a lot of his uh, his choice of phrasings and just how he's manages he's got an answer for most everything even if it doesn't fix things like he's not invincible he's not invulnerable he's not faultless and he even realizes that as an induction technician as the divine response warrior he is a failure because he still has feelings and he can't get mahoshi out of his mind and when she breaks down and he sees her so deeply affectionate for tenchi it it gets to him, and it eats him up inside, and he, he starts damning himself and calling himself second rate because he's letting emotions get in the way, and it's 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 affecting his ability to do his duties, and he gets his head back on just in time, but not quite soon enough, and it does not prevent the catastrophe that in the end kills every single person in the building. He's a very intriguing character. Uh, I don't think we will be seeing more of him. He does not show up at all in any of the shows, Akuta's manga, and as far as I can tell, he does not show up again in any of the future novels. So, Pete, thank you for being such an interesting and incredible character, and I am am looking forward to seeing fans enjoy you, if only for this one novel. I'd say that's about it. Does anybody have any last-minute thoughts? Something else that needs to be mentioned is that um, with regards to Kione and Noike, the duality of uh, characters there, there is a single, completely translated doujin, which shows Noike's first appearance. It came out in August of 1993. Hexagram of Love the first piece that Kione Makibi exists as a character in. The novel was published in May of 1993 by comparison. It was worked on as early as 1992 as she was working and on staff for OVA1. As she mentioned, she was brought on board around the time that the storyboarding and the ideas for OVA1 Episode 2 were being created. So she came on fairly early in the process. She had all that time to work on Kione and make her a character. I think that speaks volumes right there. Thank you guys for being in on TenchiCast episode 22, No Need for Hexagram of Love. If you like what you're listening to, subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on every social media aspect you can find, I'm sure we're there, and follow us on iTunes. 
one thing to keep in mind. This project, this entire novel, was done by particularly two men with the help of some others. That being our good uh, our good leader here, Gnil, and Crazed. Although really, those guys are inseparable as far as, it, uh, as, far as the novels and translations are concerned. If you are at all interested in helping these novels come out quicker, or want to help, or want to do anything to help the cause, join up at TenchiForum.com and we can get you started right away. You don't even really need to know Japanese. We'll fill you in on that later. Until next time, stay gold. (laughs) 